Well, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one as you leave today. Uh, This is week four of our study through Romans. We continue to kind of plod our way through this book. Uh, Section by section is called expositional or expository preaching. To exposit just means to explain the text in its context. And this morning, we'll be covering verses 24 through 32, which just happens to be uh, the most controversial passage in all the New Testament, according to many, maybe even in the whole Bible. Now, one criticism of expository preaching is, you know, sometimes people will say, if you just work through the Bible, work through books of the Bible, then you miss out on opportunities to really speak into what's going on in our culture and in our world and, and in our lives. Um, But the reality is, in a mysterious way, by God's good providence, uh, the text of Scripture always seems to address what's actually going on in our culture, in our world, and in our lives. And today is uh, a remarkable example of that. So just so you know, when I start to think about what books to preach through, what's coming up next, I spend time praying about it, seeking the Lord's wisdom and guidance, and then proceed according to how I believe the Lord is leading Um, And then I I write out a preaching schedule, a preaching calendar for an entire year, so one year uh, in advance. So this series through the book of Romans has been on my mind for over a year. It's been planned out for uh, about a year, and it's a schedule which has us, again, dealing with the last section in Romans chapter 1. And when I plan that out, I have to tell you, I had absolutely no idea, seriously, no idea uh, that, w- that on June 4th, which is the first Sunday of the so-called Pride Month, um, that we would be covering from the Scriptures the most uh, direct and extensive uh, treatment on homosexuality in the Bible. Again, I didn't plan this. I'm not saying I would, would have done it any differently, but I didn't plan this. This is not me on some soapbox. Um, we're just preaching through the Bible which has been the commitment here uh, for a long time. Now, as it relates to homosexuality, there are historically, I think, two ditches that Christians can easily veer off into. And one is to deny or to explain away the very clear teaching of Scripture. So we don't want to do that. We're not going to do that. Now, another ditch that Christians can easily fall into, though, is to present homosexuality as the sin above every other sin and the sin that is beyond God's grace to forgive. That, my friends, is it also a ditch that we don't want to veer off into. Uh, If God brings a person to saving faith who has struggled with drug addiction or alcoholism or pornography or adultery or violence or whatever it is, the church celebrates that story of redemption. And they praise God for that salvation. But sometimes, and I've seen this happen, and I could give you two examples right off the top of my head, but we have too much work to do. But sometimes if a person has practiced homosexuality and been in a homosexual lifestyle and is brought to saving faith by the power of God, they're actually met with skepticism or even disgust. We want to avoid either one of those ditches and frankly just hear and accept what God has to say. So we're going to do something a little differently this morning, and that is I usually uh, have three points, you know, as you know, and many of you have 
you know, made fun of me about. Um, but we usually have three points to explain the text, and then I kind of weave in the application as we go along. Well, today I'm going to give three points of applic- or, or explanation and then three points of application. So what does the text really say? And then at the end, the three points of application. So what do we do about it? And I think it's so important because, first of all, we have to accurately understand what the text is saying, but then we don't want to miss out on the so what question. What do we now do as uh, believers? So and one other thing, if you're, let me also say this, if you're, and this doesn't apply to you necessarily, but if you're listening online, you're watching online, you, you're, you pick this up later, let me just ask you if you would please listen until the end, watch until the end. I say that because, yes, we're going to talk directly about homosexuality, for sure. It's in the text. But that's not the only thing we're going to talk about. Um, There's more to this than that, and there's actually even good news uh, in a message like today. So Romans chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 24 through 32. As I mentioned, let me read the first half of that, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So just a quick reminder of the context. In in ancient Rome, which was the greatest city on earth at that time, idols were everywhere. And when I say that, I mean real, literal, hand-carved idols made of clay or stone or wood or whatever it was. And there were three sort of predominant idols that ruled the day, the so-called Capitoline Trio, Triad, that was uh, Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. Those were the three main gods and goddesses, but but gods were everywhere. There were hundreds of gods and goddesses that the Roman people worshipped. And so uh, they had made a pattern of all of this idol worship Now, you might think in a city where the gods are believed to be everywhere watching, looking down, you might think that that would be a city that'd be characterized by a very sort of high moral behavior. After all, what do you do if you're getting ready to commit some heinous act and you think the gods are watching? That, you know, presumably would be some sort of deterrent. But that wasn't the case. I I mentioned in, in week one, which is critical to know, that these gods weren't Uh, supposedly concerned about morality or behavior, uh, each was supposedly concerned about how he or she was worshipped. I say supposedly because, of course, these aren't real gods, and so they don't exist, so they don't really care about anything, they're not really concerned about anything because they don't exist. But this was the perception that these gods and goddesses were were not concerned about moral behavior, but in in fact, uh, religious practices, the, the worship practices which meant that the Roman Empire was a place of complete moral degradation. So uh, adultery, incest, abortion, child abandonment, uh, graphic violence, infanticide, the killing of infants, homosexuality, and other things. All of this is rampant in the first century Roman world. Well, in this city of complete moral chaos, there's a church that met, we, we can surmise in 
four or five different locations throughout Rome. And it was made up of mainly Gentile Christians, but also some Jewish Christians. And they were embroiled in a major cultural war. Uh, Pretty much everything within the ethos of that church was at odds with the surrounding culture. And like our culture, sex was everywhere. Paul wants to warn these Christians in this section, primarily the Gentiles here. We'll get to the Jewish Christians primarily in the next chapter. But he wants to warn them of the dangerous and, and destructive nature of immorality in general, but sexual immorality specifically. So Paul says, therefore, verse 24, or as a result of the Romans' failure to acknowledge God as God, but instead their pattern of worshiping man-made idols that resembled created things, therefore, as a result of that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now this, makes a little, this passage makes a little more sense if we kind of outline it. So let me just tell you how it unfolds. So um, it unfolds like this. Because of their idol worship, Verses 22 through 23, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, verse 24. Because of their idol worship, verse 25, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, verse 26. Because of their idol worship, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now notice in that, in what I just shared, three times there is this phrase, God gave them up. It's the Greek word paradidomi. Sometimes it translated God gave them over. Um, again, it's one Greek word. It's a difficult concept to accept, one that's surely been misunderstood. But it refers to actually handing someone over to captivity. We might say handing someone over to perpetual enslavement. So theologian John Murray explains it this way. God's displeasure is expressed and his abandonment of the person's concern to more intensified and aggravated cultivation of the lusts of their own hearts with the results that they reap for themselves a correspondingly greater toll of retributive vengeance. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, those who reject God, his word, his will, his revelation, and more explicitly exchange his glory for something else, something created, will experience the wrath of God, both in the form of God abandoning them to the full consequences of their rebellion, but also God consigning them to the enslavement of their own desires. So it's as if God is saying, okay, is this what you want? Is this really what you want? Okay, here, have all of it. We might say they are consigned to the prison of their own desires. And what happens is when God withholds his restraining grace, evil takes full bloom. So what happens specifically? Their impurity, verse 24, gave full bloom to their dishonorable passions, verse 26, which manifested in homosexual practice, verse 27, and ultimately a debased mind, verse 28. Here's our first point. Apart from God's Restraining grace, sin spirals, consumes, and leads to new and more devastating lows. Sin has a consuming, ever-expanding 
powerful influence. Three months ago on a Monday, I was in my backyard grilling uh, some salmon and asparagus when the bottom of my grill, I didn't realize I was at this place yet with my grill um, in our relationship, but the, uh, the, the, the undercarriage just rusted and fell out completely. Um, it fell onto the ground and immediately a small patch of grass caught on fire. Well, I tried to re- stomp under my grill, but I couldn't get to it. So I thought, I'll run in, I'll get a pitcher of water, and I'll come back out, and I'll just sort of douse it with water. Well, what I had failed to consider was that particular Monday was a high wind advisory for North Alabama. So by the time I got in and got back out with a pitcher of water, half of my backyard was engulfed in flames because the wind had just absolutely stoked this fire. Um, And I mean, of course, it was terrifying because it was spreading and spreading and spreading. So I immediately called 911 for the fire department. All the while I grabbed a rug, which is on my back patio, um, like a six by eight or six by nine rug. And I began dragging it around, sort of trying to stomp on the fire, but it it wasn't helping. The fire was spreading like crazy. I ran over to get my hose, which is on the side of my house. It was already engulfed in flames, flames at least two feet high. Uh, at one point, now I mean, I was—I ter- actually—I thought I was going to burn down the whole neighborhood. I really did, because at one point the fire actually went under the fences, my neighbor's fences, and got into my neighbor's yards. My neighbor, my, my whole my whole yard was was consumed was was in in flames. So I had to jump up on uh, our wooden fence, the seven foot fence. I had to jump up on there to avoid the fire. Um, now, fortunately, the fire truck came. They got three hoses out. They doused all of our yard, all the neighbors' yards. Um, it was a crazy situation. Um, well, after that, of course, they also doused my salmon and you know my asparagus. So my daughter said, "Well, Dad, what are we going to do for dinner?" And I said, "You know, it was kind of waterlogged at this point." So I said, "Let's. We'll just go to Chipotle." So we went to Chipotle, and we're standing in line. There's a long line. We were toward the front. And my 16-year-old daughter said, Dad, Dad. I said, what? She goes, your butt. <laughs> and I said, what, what about my butt? I didn't realize my adrenaline was so high. When I f- got off that fence, I tore the whole butt out of my jeans. So I was standing there. I mean, it was a very, it was a very embarrassing situation. I didn't realize I had just shred, torn, torn my jeans up. Um, but the thing is, what I, what I still, and I really was, I mean, that was a, and I, I don't use this slide, that was a very traumatizing experience because I really thought, not, not the jeans out, but the fire thing, I thought I was going to burn up the whole neighborhood. Um, the fire in my backyard began with a very small, what seemed to be a very manageable area, but it turned into an uncontrollable inferno. And this is what Paul says happens when God's design is spurned. Romans 1 is a graphic depiction of a downward spiral of ungodliness that starts with a denial of God's existence and then moves to a rejection of His revelation and often ends, as we're going to see later in this book, with a final step into outer darkness. This is a description of how sin uncontrollably spreads and devours. Now, it's also important to say, though, To say God gave them over or gave them up, this phrase that occurs three times, it may sound like it's final, but it's not. 
This is not a final giving up as if to say those who have engaged in idolatry or this type of sin have no hope for salvation. This is not, he's not talking about an unforgivable sin here. In fact, how many of God's chosen people were idol worshipers when God got a hold of their hearts? Think about the father of the so-called father of our faith, Abraham, right? Abram. He was an idol worshiper when the Lord said, you're going to be the father of many nations so that all the world will hear that there is a true and living God. So the picture is not entirely hopeless, as we'll see, but it is grim. Apart from repenting and believing the gospel, those who practice homosexuality will find themselves progressing downward in terms of their desires. Verse 26 says, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Paul's talking about homosexual practice. Women being sexually active with other women. But notice what he does here. How does Paul earlier describe the Romans' idolatry? This is key. He says they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling man and animals. That word exchange is intentional. What Paul said, when Paul says that women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, Paul is making the connection between two expressions of idolatry. Then he says in verse 27 that men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, committing shameless acts. He's talking about, of course, men being sexually active with other men. And he says they gave up or they exchanged what was natural, what was honorable for what is shameless. Now, what is Paul getting at? Here's our second point. Homosexuality is at its core idolatry. The worship of of self. This discussion on homosexuality by Paul is part of his larger argument where he declares God's judgment on idolatry. Well, how in the world is homosexuality idolatry? It is the worship of self. See, when we think about worship, we tend to think, um, as we've done this morning, you know, God's people gathering together and they're singing praises to God and and some of us are raising our hands and we're praising God for his goodness and extolling the perfections of God and Uh, and and expressing our dependence on him and so on. And it's true, that is certainly one expression, one very important expression of worship. But worship is, again, at the most foundational level, what we ascribe the greatest worth to. It's what we think is actually ultimate. So, So worship is about what we think we cannot do without. It is of greatest importance and worth in our lives. Again, it is ultimate. Well, homosexuality is worship because what it says is my specific sexual expression or fulfillment is what is ultimate. It's what I cannot do without. It is of greatest worth to me. It is what, it's of such great worth that it defines me and makes me who I am. It is of such great worth that it actually forms and creates my identity. This is, by the way, why we have, you know, being... Uh, trotted around the moniker gay Christian. Those who use that description are saying, this is what defines me. This is what makes me who I am. This is what is ultimate to me. Um, Now, that is to say my sexual desires, but as Sam Albury points out in his terrific little book, Is God Anti-Gay? We don't do that with other desires. We don't say, we don't walk around and say, I am a carnivore Christian because I eat too much from too many different food groups. Um, Now, recognizing that particular error, 
Some people have said, well, I don't want to say that my homosexual desires define me, but I do want to make it clear that they're always going to be part of who I am. And so they've said, rather than being a gay Christian, they would call themselves an SSA Christian, a same-sex attracted Christian. And I think the heart behind that is good. In other words, I think it's a noble movement, but it's not really that helpful. And here's what I mean. We would never give such prominence to other desires. We would never say, I'm always going to have these desires. I've given up the fight against them. This is who I am. For example, we would never say, I am an LMW Christian, you know, lusting after multiple women. Never say, this is who I am. We would never say, I am an LCR Christian, a lazy couch riding Christian. We don't say, this is always going to be who I am. So the problem is, ever since the enlightenment of the 18th century, elevated this idea of self. So self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self as the foundation of everything. We've actually turned our worship inward. Now, this may surprise you to hear me say this, but we actually are living in a very, very religious culture. Only what we're worshiping is this mythical idea of self. That's the ultimate worship, we believe. So this means that because my autonomy of self and my self-fulfillment are ultimate, satisfying my desires becomes essential to who I am, and therefore to deny myself the fulfillment of my desires is actually to, to deny who I actually am at the core. And this is why, some of you have noticed this, this is why only about 15 years ago, maybe, well, probably 15 to 20 years ago, you could say to a practicing homosexual, I disagree with your lifestyle, and I think what you're doing is wrong, but I love you. And that would be received. But not so anymore. Because that's totally unacceptable. Because if you consider my desires wrong, then you are necessarily rejecting me at the very core of my being. Now, some argue that this passage is not really about homosexual relationships between two consenting and loving adults. Um, what Paul really condemns is promiscuity or sexual experimentation or shrine prostitution, because it said what Paul really means when he says that women exchange natural relations for unnatural, and men gave up natural relations for unnatural, he means they didn't do what was natural for them. So there are some people, uh, in fact, a growing number of people arguing that what Paul is saying is for a man with same-sex desires to be in, engaged active with a woman sexually is actually unnatural because it goes against his natural desires and vice versa for a woman. Um, the argument says again that Paul wants, what Paul wants for people is for them to be true to themselves because in keeping with the worship of self, that is what really matters. But that simply will not work with the context at all. We saw last week that the context here is God's creation of the world, this all-powerful, all, -powerful, all uh, uh, eternally existent Self-sufficient God made everything in the world, and everything in the world, creation, screams His existence. God made us. The word natural means according to created nature, according to how things were intended to be originally. Natural means according to God's, the Creator's pattern. And unnatural means going against the Creator's pattern. We read in the early chapters of Genesis, God's purpose for creating us male and female. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
God's design at creation, God's plan for sex, we might say, is that a man and a woman would unite together for life in the context of a covenantal relationship of marriage. And contrary to nature means contrary to God's plan for sex revealed in creation. So homosexuality is against God's design, and yet because self has become ultimate, that doesn't matter for most people. What matters most is that each person is true to himself or true to herself, not to God's design, all of which has led to the downward spiral that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. And I love what pastor and theologian Greg Gilbert writes. Paul says homosexuality is the bitter fruit and the outworking of a human race bent on worshiping itself rather than God. Now, lest you think this is just about homosexuality, or lest you think, yeah, homosexuals are so bad, I'm glad I'm not one of them, Paul continues in his letter this way. Look at verses 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I said last week that this passage is not just about homosexuality. This is an indictment of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Everyone who's not been reconciled to God through repentant faith in Jesus is currently under the wrath of God. Verses 28 through 32 reveal what theologians call the total depravity of mankind, or radical depravity. doesn't mean we always do the worst possible thing uh, you know, po- imaginable. Um, it doesn't mean we always choose evil. But what it does mean that everything we do, we say, we think, we perceive, we believe, is tainted by sin. The effects of Adam's sin, the sin of our first parents, that resulted in the disease of sin being passed on to his children and their children and every other person who would ever be born, including us, so that you and I enter the world as self-lovers, not God-lovers, self-worshippers, not God-worshippers, insistent on doing things our own way. That's from the moment we arrive on this earth. The list shows what sort of chaos is caused by the, this rejection of God. Economic chaos, verse 29, greed. Social chaos, verse 29, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Family chaos, disobedient to parents. Internal chaos, foolish, faithless, heartless. And the list goes on. Again, it's not comprehensive, but it is broad. And this list of things represents the characteristics of all of us until we are rescued and redeemed by God. These sins that Paul mentioned are sins that we enter the world committing. Who can say they've never been envious? Who can say they've never been greedy? Who can say they've never disobeyed their parents? Who can say they've never been heartless or ruthless or haughty or boastful? This is a list that leaves us all guilty. 
The late Tim Keller writes, the function of these verses, that being 28 through 32, is to draw out any self-righteous pride in us, any feeling of satisfaction that they are the wicked and I am not like them. There's no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. There's no room for aren't they gross in the kingdom of God. There's no room for at least I'm not like them in the kingdom of God. There's no room for they're beyond hope in the kingdom of God. In fact, the very first verse of chapter 2, which we won't get to until next week, Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. This all flows together. You know, in the letters of the New Testament, there weren't chapter and verse divisions. These came much later. This is all one flowing, beautiful, glorious argument. The point being, we're all hopeless sinners in need of God's grace. Homosexuals, heterosexuals, we're all idol worshipers. We all take things that are good and we make them ultimate in our lives, things that we believe we cannot do without and still have purpose and meaning in life. For some, it's certain foods and drink. For others, it's sports, pleasure, money, success, approval, health. We all have those things that we believe. And we may not say that, But in our minds, these are ultimate and we must have. This passage prompts us to look for those idols of our own heart, areas where where we're envious, lusting, greedy, boastful, and repent of those things and then trust in God's forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Here's our final point before we get to the application. A comprehensive list of sins and vices that merit God's wrath is precisely that from which God has delivered those who believe. There's none of us. We can't read Romans 1 and say, yeah, it's all about them. Because none of us has fully obeyed these commands. These vices in Romans 1 expose all of us. But of all these sins and vices, we've been forgiven if we are in Christ. We receive forgiveness in Christ. In Christ, there's now therefore no condemnation, Romans 8. Though this list leaves us guilty and deserving of God's wrath and eternal separation from God because Jesus committed none of these sins. Jesus fell to none of these vices, but was in fact obedient to God in every way, even to death on a cross. We are declared righteous by him through faith. Paul will say earlier in this chapter, so whether it's homosexual sin or greed, or envy, or lust, or gossip, or murder, or strife. We are all fully cleansed from these sins by the blood of Christ at the moment we put our faith in Him. You know, we say all the time, I've probably said it literally a thousand times in my ministry, that entrance into heaven cannot be earned. Now, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But it probably needs an asterisk by it. And here's what I mean. Entrance into heaven actually has to be earned. The price to get in, so to speak, is perfect obedience. Nothing else will suffice. But Jesus earned heaven for us by his total obedience, what we call the active obedience of Christ, passive obedience, his suffering on the cross, his death for our sins. 
But had Jesus not obeyed God perfectly, he A, would not have been a suitable sacrifice, and B, we would be back where Adam started, still having to be fully obedient in order to earn our way into heaven. But Jesus actually was fully and completely and totally obedient. And by his obedience, we gain heaven through faith in him. A few chapters later in Romans 5, we'll read that, for as by one, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ has earned heaven for us. When we trust in Jesus, we are declared not guilty, and the perfect obedience of Jesus is credited to us. And we are granted a place in heaven on the merits of Christ, not on anything we've done. If you're in Christ, God not only looks at you as someone who has been forgiven, but he also looks at you as someone who has been completely obedient in every way because of Christ for you, which means that no sin in your past no secret sin, no scandalous sin, no sin that appears to be worse than all the others. No sin needs to haunt you. No sin will prevent you from being in God's presence. And no sin needs to cause you shame. Because if you are in Christ, Christ has bore your guilt and your shame on the cross. And he has lived a perfectly obedient life. And that obedience is yours by faith. So, Let's make some application. What do we do with this very difficult section? What's the street value, so to speak? Well, let me give you three, three ways we can apply it. The first application, since homosexuality is idolatry, we ought not minimize it. Let me say it this way. Let's not call good what God calls evil. We cannot accept homosexuality as biblically permissible. We cannot say that it is not a sin against God because it is a sin against God. And Paul makes the very haunting statement in verse 32. And man, this re- I had to really pray and seek the Lord's forgiveness myself, not about this particular area, but other areas. He says in verse 32 that approving those who practice such sins is equal, he suggests, equal to committing such sins. But you know as well as I do, the pressure to cave in this area is tremendous. And many people we love have caved. I know people, I've seen countless people over the years who had a very strong conviction. Homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality was a sin against God. And then someone they love, someone they knew came out as gay and they softened and eventually began to deny the clear teaching in Scripture. It's a very difficult thing. I'm not minimizing the challenge of it. I know it's very difficult As theologian and author Tim Gallant writes, whereas throughout the history of the church, the practice of homosexuality has been virtually universally opposed among Christians in recent years, that thinking has shifted dramatically. And a study that was done in in 2021, a poll asking self-identifying Christian young adults between the ages of 18 and 29, if they believe that homosexuality was wrong, Only 49% said yes. So 51% of these self-identifying Christians, young adults, said they believe it's acceptable, it's right, it's honorable. Now, if you think that number is high and you have kids in the 18 to 29 range, ask them what they believe. Say, hey, be honest. How do you feel about it? What do you believe? I could tell you the stories of 
Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapels across America. Best-selling authors, Jen Hatmaker, Rob Bell, whom I got to know a little bit when I was in seminary in Grand Rapids, Eugene Peterson, other prominent professing Christians who have changed their views on homosexuality. I could tell you story after story, but we would run out of time. But despite this so-called change of perspective by so many, God has never softened his view on idolatry. He will not tolerate it. If you're reading through the Seeing Jesus Together uh, journal, you came across uh, about a month or so ago the, the story of Josiah. And you may Josiah became king of uh, Israel, Judah, when he was eight years old. And what's fascinating is Josiah's father, Ammon, was a very evil, evil, idol-worshiping man. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, was even worse. He was, according to the scriptures, one of the most evil men to ever live. Sacrificed his own son in the fire to the false god of Moloch. So Josiah comes along, he's eight years old, and, and, and by God's good providence, under Josiah's reign, uh, the book of the law is discovered. The book of God's law. And when Josiah, the king, read it, along with his advisors, they were absolutely just shredded with guilt and concern. And I'm, I'm telling you this story because it gets so interesting to me. Um, Josiah then decides that he will not follow the ways of his dad or his granddad. In fact, Josiah proceeded to tear down and destroy every place where idols were worshipped. But that's not all. That's not all. Not only did he tear down all the altars where the false gods were worshipped, and then he, then he burned them to dust and scattered the ashes... But then as he's doing all this, he looks up under the hillside and he realizes that there are some dead bodies, the, the dead bodies of the, the bodies of the dead prophets of all the false gods are buried up in the hills. And so he calls for all of the, 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 prof, the bodies of the false prophets to be exhumed, to be brought out of uh, their buried place, dug up from the caves. And then he had the bones of the dead bodies of the prophets scattered uh, their ashes scattered over the worship sites for the false gods. Josiah understood something about the Lord's hatred for idolatry. It wasn't enough just to tear down the, false, uh, the, the altars and the Asherah poles. He said, we're going to actually exhume the bodies of the false prophets, burn their decrepit bodies, and going to scatter the ashes over the place where the false gods were formerly worshipped. I did a poor job. I kind of stumbled through that story, but you get the point. God does not wink at. God does not tolerate idolatry. So the first application is let's not call good what God calls evil. Here's the second application. Let's engage those who practice homosexuality differently. Here's what I mean. If homosexuality is at its core idolatry, the worship of self, then the way we approach those who practice homosexuality has to change. Our job is not to tell them, change your behavior or even change your desires. What we're called to do is lovingly implore them to redirect their worship to something real, to something fulfilling. See, the only way to stop idolatry is to replace one object of worship with another. Because we are created to be worshiping beings. The only real answer to idolatry is the worship of the true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And at the end of the day, if we won't worship and serve him, we will always worship and serve something invented. And that something will invariably lead to emptiness, frustration, and despair. Every kind of idolatry, we see this in the desperation of the prophets of old. We see it today. Every kind of idolatry, every type of false worship leads to misery. It always does. Especially the exaltation of self because false gods aren't real. They offer no power. They deliver no healing. They can bring no hope. They only lead to emptiness, which is why depression and suicide rates are so high in the homosexual community. It's not primarily because of oppression or persecution, which we're led to believe. It's because of idolatry. That's the reason. So our approach to homosexuals is to introduce them to the living God and to call them to repent and believe the gospel and live in the power of the risen Christ, which doesn't mean that their desires will instantly change. But the risen Lord does change us by His Word. He conforms us into His very image. He forgives us and He makes us new. He sanctifies us. So we invite homosexuals to know and worship the living God through His Son, not because we want to correct them or demand that they change. It's not our business to correct those outside the church. But as those who have, been, who have experienced God's transforming power, His deliverance from sin, we can attest to the good news of the gospel, the news about a God who actually can satisfy the thirsty soul, who actually can provide real peace and meaning and hope, and a God who can give rest, a Savior whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. All right, one final application Let's be as grieved by our own sin as we are by anyone else's and rest in and proclaim the complete forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. You know, we get so easily hung up on the sins of others, don't we? And they tend to be sins that we don't struggle with to the same degree. But let's be as bothered by our own sins as we are by anyone else's. And be quick to share with others the forgiveness that we've received so that they can too receive that forgiveness in Christ. It doesn't mean we can't say, I believe this is wrong. I've already said seven times in one sermon, homosexuality is sin, it's idolatry, it's wrong. But rather than first looking for the sin in others or thinking about how wrong others are, let's apply this passage to ourselves first and ask, what idols am I worshiping in my own heart? What are those things that I think are ultimate that I just cannot give up and still believe that I can enjoy life? What are those good things that I've made ultimate things? What sins am I enslaved to that I've not repented of and trusted the gospel for? In what ways have I looked down at others and ignored my own sin? Where have I allowed the cultural pressure to determine what I believe to be good and true? And then as we answer those questions honestly, let's run to Jesus who died for our idolatry, who was perfectly obedient so that we could be accepted by God forever. The one who, as we're going to sing in just a minute, created the world, but also felt the nails in his hand. The creator of the universe subjected himself to such pain and misery and agony and the wrath of God in our place. In him, there is forgiveness and a freedom 
that no other God, especially the false God of self, can offer. Let's pray.